pull out the one in front of you in the seat back. And um, on the version I looked, sometimes there's two versions that float around. And the, Sharon gave you a page in the thousands, which must be one of those versions. The version I looked up, it was page 729. Um, so you could try that too. <laughs> anyway, Luke chapter 6, 37 to 42. This morning we continue the uh, following the story of Jesus as told by Luke. And back to, in chapter 5 and 6 of Luke's gospel, which we've been looking at over the past few months, we saw Jesus taking some radical actions which got him into trouble with the religious people. Uh, Jesus touched a man who wasn't supposed to be touched because the man was unclean with leprosy. Jesus forgave a paralyzed man's sins and claimed to have authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus, the rabbi, invited a very sketchy, sinful tax collector to be one of his um, seminary students. Um, and what's worse, he associated with and ate with and welcomed a lot of this man's sinful friends, giving the impression in that culture that these were his type of people. Jesus partied and celebrated when all the godly people were fasting and mourning about the dismal spiritual state of God's people. Jesus claimed he was bringing new wine, which couldn't be contained anymore in the wineskins of the, the accepted forms and practices of religion. Then Jesus seemingly broke God's holy Sabbath and claimed that he was the Lord of the Sabbath. And by this point, the, the Pharisees and, and the teachers of the law who were the, the diligent, faithful followers of God in Jesus' day, they just completely gave up on Jesus. They, they concluded that he was totally out of touch with God, that he was motivated by darker powers. And, and so they concluded that Jesus was dangerous and misguided and, and wicked, and they had a responsibility to do something about it. So they went out and began plotting what would eventually become his trial and execution, which is how religious people in that day took care of big religious problems. Well, Jesus realized by this point that, um, that his way was being rejected by the key leaders of God's people. And so he did something radical and prophetic. Jesus started a new people. He chose 12 apostles to correspond to the 12 Old Testament tribes. And with those 12 new leaders, he refounded the people of God. And then he began calling people out of the old wineskins of God's old people and into the new. And Jesus began um, drawing these new disciples together. And then he gave this new people a new law to live by. Not the Ten Commandments this time or the Law of Moses, but the teachings of Jesus. And that's what we've been looking at over the past few weeks in Luke 6. It's Jesus' teaching on how we're to live as part of this new people in this new kingdom that Jesus has come to bring. This people that Jesus has founded and is now inviting us into. And what we've been seeing as we've been going through Luke 6 is that Jesus' kingdom is founded on lavish grace. How can Jesus begin his teaching of life in his kingdom, in his new people? By declaring blessing on the poor and on the hungry and on those who weep and on those who are persecuted? Because God intends to lavish grace on them. 
How can Jesus pronounce woes on the rich and the well-fed and those who laugh and are well-spoken of now? Because they have chosen to pursue and to hold on to their own attainments in place of the grace that God would have given them. How can Jesus tell us, as we saw last week, to love our enemies, to do good to those who hate us, to bless those who curse us, to pray for those who mistreat us? How can he tell us to turn the other cheek and to give our uh, shirt to the one who's already taken our coat and to give to everyone who asks and to relinquish our right to hold on to what people take from us or borrow from us and don't repay? How can Jesus ask us to do all that? Because of grace. Because we have been given abundant grace and Jesus expects us to treat other people graciously as well. In today's passage, Jesus continues to to reinforce and to drive home this message of grace. In verse 38, Jesus points out uh, or points us to to God's grace and, and Jesus teaches us what God is like. He gives us a picture. He compares us to a shop owner. We go to a shop owner, let's say, to buy a bushel of wheat. And the shop owner pulls out his bushel measure. I don't know if this is a bushel or not, but we'll, we'll pretend. He takes out his bushel measure, and it's a, it's a good measure. It's an accurate measure. He's not going to cheat us by giving us a, a measure that's a tad too small. He's going to give us a full bushel. And so he starts pouring grain into this measure and he fills it right up to the top. And we go to pay him, but he waves us off. He's not done yet. Because now he presses down the wheat. He he packs it in. Then he starts shaking it together to to get it into all the little nooks and crannies and, and to get every air pocket out. And once he's done this, now there's more room. And uh, so he, he, he takes his grain again and, and he tops it up. But not only does he fill it level to the top, but he just keeps pouring. He pours it up. He heaps it up until it's spilling off the sides. Until it can't take any more. Then he takes all of that grain. He takes that full honest bushel plus more heaped up and he pours it all out for us. People back then would, would take their cloaks and they would you know, lift them up. And, and in kind of the pouch of their cloaks, their purchases would, they would take their purchases home. So he pours all of that into our lap, so to speak. That's Generosity. That's generosity. While while a lot of merchants try to get ahead by cheating a little here and and skimping a little there, not this shop owner. No, God graciously and, and generously heaps upon us more than we expect and more than we deserve. What's the point? God is not only fair and trustworthy, God is generous. More generous than he has to be. He gives us all the good we deserve and then even more. And and that's what we see in Jesus, right? That's how Jesus treats people. That's how Jesus wants to treat you. That's the way Jesus graciously measures, measures out love and forgiveness and blessing. 
When it comes to his people, Jesus doesn't worry about exactly what we deserve. Rather, Jesus just lavishly pours out grace because that's what God is like. That's God's heart. And now Jesus is forming a new people. And Jesus has begun teaching this people. And the first thing that Jesus wants us to get is that that is how we are to treat others as well. Because Jesus has come to bring God's grace and he's calling us together to be his people, to to live in that grace, to spread that grace and to represent that grace to others. How else is the world going to know what God is like? Except that God's people reflect and imitate the God who is gracious by being a community where people can see and experience that grace firsthand. And Jesus gives us a lot of ways to do that in this chapter. So given that background, in today's passage, Jesus addresses this question. What happens when God's new people fail to reflect their God and Savior? What happens when we take advantage of God's grace for ourselves, but then we go out and we fail to treat other people with the same gracious generosity? Jesus tells us in verse, verses 37 to 38 what happens. He warns us, do not judge or you will be judged. Do not condemn or you will be condemned. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure pressed down, shaken together and running over. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. What happens when we as God's people fail to treat other people graciously? According to Jesus, God will fail to treat us graciously as well. Rather, God will take the measure that we have used with others and will measure it back to us from that measure. God will take the yardstick we use to to judge other people. God will take the basket we used to dish out blessings to others and God will use that measure on us. What an awesome opportunity And what a fearsome responsibility. We get to choose the standard that God uses to judge us and to bless us. That's a pretty fair way for God to treat us, don't you think? Do we have a harsh, exacting yardstick that we require others to live up to? Then God will judge us by that same standard, that same measure. Do we have a small, skimpy basket that we use to grudgingly dish out blessings to others? Then God will use that same basket to dip out blessings to us. But if our basket is large, if it's plentiful, if it's generous in how we treat others, then God will use that same generous basket in blessing us as well. Only God will pack it in and heap it up even more. Because that's what's really in God's heart to do. So what happens when we as God's people fail to reflect God's grace and generosity? Well, first, we put an exacting, perfectionistic, and stingy measure in God's hands to judge us by. And second, we also prove that we're like blind people trying to lead other blind people, verses 39 and 40. If we as God's people fail to be gracious and generous toward others, then we show how blind we are to God. That we're blind to God's gracious 
nature and God's generous character. And so when we as religious people seek to influence someone else by critiquing them or by judging them, we may think that we're helping them, but, but we're only blindly leading them further astray. In another place, this is how Jesus describes the Pharisees. He, he warns his disciples, leave them, leave the Pharisees. They are blind guides. Sure, they know God's word really well. Sure, they care about God's honor a great deal. They're really religious. Sure, they're zealous for, for people to live holy, righteous lives. But they are blind to God's grace. They don't realize that God is generously, graciously, like that shop owner, willing to forgive, willing to bless those who don't deserve it. And so when the Pharisees try to help other people to, to know God and to live godly lives, they're just the blind leading the blind. And if we aren't willing to treat others with lavish grace and generosity, then we are blind as well, Jesus is saying. We haven't really had our eyes opened yet to how gracious God is. Jesus goes on, doesn't need to give a really memorable and even humorous word picture of this. I'll give you a chance to read it. <laughs> he, he, he says, picture it like this. You're, you're trying to help your brother or sister who's, who's got a, a little speck in their eye. And, and you're trying to help them to, to see it, to get it out. But all the time, you've got a log in your own eye. Who's got the bigger problem, you or them? They may have a speck. Maybe there's a sin that they're struggling with. There's a fault that they have. There's a rough edge to their life. And, and you want to help them. You, you want to fix them. But there's no way you're going to be any help because you've got a huge log in your own eye. And what's the log? It's that you don't understand God's gracious, generous nature. Which means you don't understand much at all about God yet. You have no business trying to help anyone because you're blind as a bat spiritually. You don't see that it's got to be all about God's grace and generosity. What happens when we, as, as God's people, fail to be gracious and generous towards others? Jesus gives us a third answer in verse 40. We're like a student who thinks we know more than our teacher. <laughs> Now, I know there are exceptions which prove the rule, but generally teachers know more than their students, right? That's kind of the point of education. But there are some students who have a chip on their shoulder who think they know it all, right? A student like this is arrogant, they're deluded, and so they're unteachable. You know, with, with each of our kids, there, there have been times when they were young, maybe three or four years old, when they got something in their heads that they thought was true which was dead wrong. I wish I could think of an example. We were racking our brains, but the only ones we could think of were, were too close to now, and so they weren't safe to share. Um, but, you know, these, our little kids would, would get something in their mind, and no matter how much we told them they were wrong, they just wouldn't listen to us. They were so sure that they were right. And so either this would drive us crazy, um, it would especially drive their older siblings crazy or or we just have to laugh at it because it's so foolish to think a student knows more than their teacher. And yet when we fail to act graciously toward others, we are doing exactly the same thing. 
we're doing the same thing. Because Jesus is our teacher and he's been so gracious with us and so generous and so patient. Why? Because that's God's way. That's God's character. That's how God's kingdom works. So then when we turn around as the student and we look at others and we say, that person really needs to shape up. They need to measure up to my standard. They need to to do better, to be better before I'll accept them. I'm sure God would just laugh at us if he wasn't crying. (laughs) Because he hasn't treated us that way. He's been so utterly gracious towards us. And so Jesus says, no student is above their teacher. Jesus is saying, I'm the teacher and I don't treat people that way. So how can you as my student pretend to? I wish you'd become fully trained in my grace because then you'd be like your teacher. So question, if it's all about grace, like Jesus has been teaching us, and as Jesus has been showing us in the way he relates to other people, if, if we are not to judge, if we are not to condemn, if we're to treat people with lavish generosity, does this mean that we have no moral word to speak to anyone else? That we ha- can have no standards? How do the, we, the, we then square this with, with what Jesus says elsewhere? For example, Matthew 18, Jesus tells us if, if a brother or sister sins, we should go to them and show them their fault. Uh, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle of Grace, tells Jesus' followers in 1 Corinthians 5.12 that they are expected to judge those within the church. Are we to judge others or aren't we to judge others? Is the Bible contradicting itself here? And if not, how do we resolve this tension? Answer, I don't think the Bible's contradicting itself because recognizing someone's sin and and confronting them on it is not necessarily a lack of grace. Any more than warning someone that their clothes are on fire is a lack of grace. Sometimes warning someone that they're in trouble is the most loving thing that we can do. So there must be two kinds of judging then that that the Bible's talking about. A bad judging that Jesus forbids in our passage and a good judging that he encourages elsewhere. So how do we tell the difference, right? How do we figure out the difference between what's the bad judging and what's the good judging? Well, let me suggest a way. And that is that we need to learn to distinguish between discerning and criticizing. Between discerning and... And criticizing to discern is, is to recognize that some things are right and some things are wrong. That some things are good and some things are bad. Some things are wholesome and other things are foul. To discern means to recognize the difference. God's word is full of encouragements that we would learn to discern. That we would learn the difference between good and evil, between right and wrong. But just because we discern good and bad in our lives or or in the behaviors of others does not mean that we have to criticize. To criticize is to find fault. It's to tear someone down, to, to pick them apart, to look down on them as bad or inferior. When Jesus tells us to go to our brother or sister who sins, he's calling us to discern But when he tells us not to judge, he's warning us not to criticize in our hearts 
or with our mouths. Now, I've met plenty of people who do just the opposite. They criticize, but they don't discern. They've taken Jesus' command not to judge as letting them off the hook so they don't have to be discerning. They say, oh man, I can't judge anyone, you know, to each his own. Um, who, who am I to say that what you're doing is wrong? Jesus says we're not to judge anyone, so I just accept everyone just the way they are. That's cool, you know. And yet here's the irony. Some of these same people will turn around and criticize people. They'll, they'll criticize their church and its leaders. They'll criticize their boss at work. They'll, they'll criticize their spouse and their kids. They'll criticize other people who rub them the wrong way. They won't discern good from bad, but they will criticize those they don't like. And what they're really doing is they're putting their own standards in place of God's standards. They're saying, God, I'm not going to discern your standards of right and wrong, but I reserve the right to criticize people based on my own standards. And that, in fact, is what our whole society has done, right? We, we've, we've made it our national pastime. We don't want to discern right from wrong. We don't want to judge anyone. But yet, we still criticize people all the time. But Jesus' way was just the opposite. Jesus' way is to discern but not to criticize. Yes, discern. Good and bad matter. Truth and lies matter. Faithfulness and infidelity matter. Bad choices, wrong choices do ruin lives. Discern the difference. Pursue what is good. Embrace it. Help one another with it. But that doesn't mean that you have a right to criticize those who don't measure up. Don't criticize them to their face. Don't criticize them to your friends behind their back. Don't even criticize them in your heart. What, are you blind, Jesus says? Don't you realize how much grace God has given you? How much he's forgiven you? Then how can you turn around and criticize someone else? You haven't walked in their shoes. You don't know what they've been through or what their struggles are. If you are, are constantly measuring people up and finding that they fall short in your estimation, then be careful because God will use that same measure to judge you. So, practically now, how do we discern without criticizing? How does grace work in all of this? Particularly, how do we go to someone and confront them, like Jesus tells us to do in Matthew 18, but how do we do it in grace without criticizing them? Well, in conclusion, let me make four suggestions on what this might look like. First, we have to ask ourselves, can our relationship, our relationship with this other person handle this confrontation? And here's an analogy that I like to use when I'm thinking if I should confront someone. I think of my relationship with that person, if we can have the next slide, um, as being like a bridge. And, and the conversation that I'm thinking about having with them as like a truck that has to go over that bridge. And I want to know if my relationship with them is strong enough to hold up the weight of that truck. Do I know them well enough? Do, um, do they know that I care about them enough? Do, do they trust me enough? Do, do they respect me? Will they be able to hear it from me? How strong is that bridge? And then, how heavy is that truck? 
Is this a serious matter? Is it going to be embarrassing to them? Does it have big consequences for their life, for their honor, for their ego? How hard of a conversation is this going to be? Is the bridge of our relationship strong enough to hold the weight of our conversation? And if I don't know the person very well or we have a rocky relationship, then maybe I'm not the best person to talk to them. So that's the first thing. Second, discern behaviors, but not motives. Discern behaviors, but not motives. I I can look at your behavior, and in some cases, I can discern right from wrong. But I um, am much less able to discern what your motives really are. The author Stephen Covey gives a great example of a time that he learned this lesson. He was riding the New York City subway early one Sunday morning. There were only a few passengers aboard, and they were reading their newspapers, or they were dozing. It was a very peaceful ride. Then at the next stop, a a man gets on with several small children, and in less than a minute, bedlam erupts on the subway car. The kids are running up and down the aisles. They're shouting. They're screaming. They're wrestling with one another on the floor, and their father makes no attempt to intervene. The elderly passengers start to shift nervously. The level of stress is going up in the car. Covey is waiting impatiently. Surely this father is going to do something to restore order. A gentle word of correction or a stern command. Some expression of pastoral uh, authority. Anything. But there's nothing from this dad. And so frustration is mounting. And Covey says, after an unduly generous pause, finally he turns to the father and he says as kindly as he can, sir, perhaps you could restore order here by telling your children to come back and sit down. I know I should do something, the father replies. We just came from the hospital and their mother died an hour ago. I just don't know what to do. Discern behavior, yes. But don't pretend you can discern motives. Third, before you confront someone, take the log out of your own eye first, right? (laughs) But before I can say anything to you, I've got to remember all the times that I've messed up. I've got to appreciate how much I've been forgiven, how God has dealt with me with lavish grace. And then once I'm humble enough about my own shortcomings, my own sins, and I'm grateful enough about God's grace and how patient he's been with me, then I can see clearly enough to to help you, a fellow struggler, to deal with your issue. Fourth, we're going to skip over just for the sake of time. We've touched on it in various ways already. If you have to err, err on the side of grace. So let's go to the last one. And that is finally, before I challenge someone, I've got to remember that the goal is redemption. The goal is that this is redemptive for that person. This is important because there are two other motives that that I know tend to motivate me to confront other people. One is that I'm angry, I'm annoyed, I'm, I'm hurt, or I'm embarrassed. And this most often happens with the people I'm close with, like family members. I'm I'm mad at them, they're annoying me, or they've they've hurt me, and I want to vent at them, or I want to fix them, so they don't do it again, right? (laughs) And when this is my main motive in in talking to them, as you can imagine, they don't receive that kind of correction very well. Because chances are, I've forgotten about grace, and I've lapsed back into criticism. 
The other motive I've often felt is, is guilt or discomfort. Like the time a, a friend of mine made what I felt was a bad church and a uh, bad choice um, in the person that she was planning to marry. And, and I felt, boy, someone needs to talk to her. She can't marry this guy. This is going to be a nightmare. But, but what a hard conversation to have. And so I put it off and, and I feel guilty. Like if she marries this guy, her life's going to be ruined and it's going to partly be my fault, right? Because I didn't have the guts to go talk to her. And so I'm feeling more and more guilty. I'm feeling more and more comfortable every time I see her. Or, or maybe another example, maybe we're used to polite religious company and, and then someone comes into our life and, and he's rough around the edges. You know, he tells jokes, which which we wouldn't tell, and, and he makes lifestyle choices which we feel are wrong, and we just feel uncomfortable around him. And, and maybe we feel if we hang out with him, somehow we're guilty by association. So let's say um, that finally I go and I talk to the, my female friend who's getting married, but, but, but my main motive in doing so is just to get out from the, to the, this load of guilt. I'm looking for relief from how guilty I've been feeling about this. Or, or let's say we do say something to this crude, rough guy just to try to alleviate the discomfort we feel. How do you think those conversations are going to go when those are our motives? <laughs> yeah, not very well, right? Probably. Because people pick up on our true motives like that. And what these feelings, these motives are doing is they're distancing us from these people. We're coming to them across a divide. We're not coming to them with the heart of love. They know if we really care about them or if we're just venting our own guilt or discomfort. The only chance that, that they're going to listen is if they feel love and, and grace and they sense that we're, we just want God's best for them. The goal has got to be redemptive. James says in James 5.20, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their ways will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. That's what God wants. That's God's motivation. God doesn't enjoy catching people in their sin so he can rub their noses in it. No, God just wants what's good for them. Like the father of the prodigal son, God just wants them to come home so he can celebrate and lavish love and blessing on them and have them close once again. That's God's grace. That's God's generosity. That's what Jesus has done for us. And as his people, that's what Jesus wants us to do for others. Amen.